0: Welcome to the Web Policy Talk podcast, recorded live at the Impact and Policy Research Institute, IMPRI,
1: New Delhi. Namaste and good evening. I, Chavi Jain, researcher at IMPRI, Impact and Policy Research Institute, Prabhav Niti Neeti Anusandhan Zansthan, Nai Delhi. extend my warmest welcome to you all to IMPRI, hashtag web policy talk. Today, we have gathered here for a special lecture on liberal international order and global disorders, understanding the past for imagining alternative futures. This discussion is a part of the series, hashtag diplomacy dialogue, organized by IMPRI, Center for International Relations and Strategic Studies. Without further ado, I would now like to introduce our speaker for today, Professor Meenal Srivastav. Professor Meenal Srivastav is a professor and coordinator of Political Economy and Global Studies at Athabasca University. Her research broadly explores the variety of political processes affecting the conceptualization and manifestation of globalization. MAM's academic research has so far led to the publication of three books and more than 150 articles, book chapters, papers and opinion pieces. Recently, Ma'am has been learning to use relational stories and creative writing as a research methodology to illustrate how individual lives intersect with broad social political trends. A very warm welcome to you, ma'am.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Chevy.
1: Our discussions for today are Professor Ashok Acharya, who is a professor at Department of Political Science, University of Delhi, and Dr. Priya Mirza, who is an assistant professor at Department of Political Science, Zakir Hussain College, University of Delhi. Thank you for joining us, sir and ma'am. I would now invite our moderator for today, Dr. Simi Mehta, CEO and Editorial Director at IMPRI to proceed with the deliberation. Thank you, ma'am, and over to you. Thank you, Chavi,
0: and good evening to everyone from India and good morning, especially to our speaker. Uh, Professor meenal Shivastav. So mm, the concept of a global world order or a global order presents images and imaginations of a global community, which is living in peace and harmony. But this is not always true if we have a deeper thought on it, given the manifestations of conflicts, wars and violence in varying degrees in different parts of the world. A liberal order after the end of the Second World War was purported to be the conduit to peace and a civilized global order. In its ideation stage, it was intended to bring prosperity to all. However, this has not always been the case. One is compelled to think about the disorders in the prevailing international order, such as the rise of populism, authoritarianism, nationalism, protectionism, aggressions, open flouting of international norms and human rights and uh, to each his own behavior in dealing with climate change and even as we saw in COVID-19 amongst several others. Most of the insights into the liberal international order are explained from the vantage point of dominant Western scholarship. Oftentimes this ignores the indigeneity of challenges in the region where they occur and hence solutions that are recommended are actually imposed from the outside. So today's discussion would delve into all this and raise pertinent questions on what is left out in the dominant accounts of an international order and why this matters, not only for understanding the past, but also for imagining alternatives for our collective futures. I'm delighted that this special lecture is being delivered and discussed by experts on the subject, Professor Meenal Srivastava, Professor Ashokacharya, and Dr. Mirza. Thank you so much for accepting our invitation and joining us today. And I hand it over to Professor Srivastava.
2: Over to you, ma'am. Thank you so much for the introduction, both to Chavi and to Simi. Uh, I'm going to try and see if I can this time correctly share my screen. Um, and here it is. And
3: put
2: that in. Yeah, all right. So thank you again for uh, uh, to the Center for International Relations and Strategic Studies at IMPRI for organizing this web policy talk series. As was stated in the introduction, I currently live in what is now called Canada, a land with rich and diverse history of indigenous peoples which stretches long into the past before the arrival of European and other settlers. Uh, Born and raised in Jaipur, I received my PhD in International Studies from Jawaharlal Nehru University in New Delhi, following which I was privileged to have a decade-long academic career in South Africa during its transition from an apartheid police state to a democracy. Presently, I'm located in the unceded Coast Salish territory of the Wasanich peoples and work for Athabasca University, Canada's open and distance university, located on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional gathering place and territory of the Plains Cree, Woodland Cree, Beaver Cree, Soto, Nisitapi, Métis, and the Nakota Sioux peoples. I believe that Acknowledgement of historical relationships between land and peoples is important for critical self-reflection as individuals, academics, students, and citizens. It is also an opportunity to continue to examine our own role in the continuation of unjust institutions and to strive to use our privileges and practices to address historical and structural injustices particularly in these times of rising global crisis, extreme inequality, and the democratic deficit. Um, as you know, we are living in a time of unprecedented material progress, juxtaposed with overlapping crises and contradictions. The giant strides in biotechnology, robotics, and nanotechnology have significantly increased Um, the efficacy of medicine, which has not only boosted health outcomes for many, but also the possibility of radical life enhancements and extensions for some. At the same time, a number of these advancements remain persistently divorced from the complex array of determinants of global health, where the biggest challenges remain completely different. Non-communicable diseases, such as cardiovascular diseases, cancer, diabetes, malaria, and others, account for 75% of all premature deaths in the world, 85% of which occur in low and middle income countries. Newly emergent diseases and zoonotic diseases, such as the ongoing COVID pandemic, and the increased risk of pandemics in in the wake of climate change, animal health, food sources, and supply, structural and institutional violence leading to lack of access to health education and healthcare for marginalized populations, environmental factors related to pollution and the climate crisis, which is threatening the habitability of our planet itself, and political factors such as conflict, as well as inadequate policy responses determined by ideology rather than by scientific data. Together, these factors are the major indicators of health impacts and outcomes for individuals and communities, but they remain unaddressed in a depoliticized and ahistorical approach to global health and associated spending and funding. Continuing in the realm of technology, the convergence of multiple technologies has led to the emergence of the Internet of Things with consumer healthcare, industrial infrastructure and military applications. Largely happening in the absence of international and local standards, guidelines or regulatory frameworks, this seamless integration of systems and devices is not only enabling our smart homes and autonomous transportation, it has also led to an unprecedented rise in surveillance data monetization, spread of misinformation, and many issues of digital privacy and security. These advancements in information and community technology also remain inherently uneven within and between countries. For instance, in 2019, 98% of the population of Norway used the internet compared to 2% in Somalia. Moreover, the digital divide is not just among the countries in the global north and global south of the 13% of American population without access to information and communication technology in 2021. Most are disproportionately people of color, older Americans, people with disabilities, foreign born, and people who live in rural areas. Perhaps nothing exemplifies the contradictions of the contemporary liberal international order more than the fact that during this ongoing pandemic, according to a Forbes report, a new billionaire was minted every 17 hours on average over the past year. And the world's wealthiest are five trillion richer than a year ago. During the same time, according to the International Labor Organization, 255 million full-time jobs were lost worldwide, approximately four times greater than the number lost during the 2009 global financial crisis. How do we then understand the contemporary international order in such a complex context? Most importantly, what prevents us from reconfiguring current political economic patterns to address the many intersecting crises of this century? which includes a pandemic, climate catastrophes, economic collapse, mass uprisings against racist, sexist and institutionalized violence, growing inequality and existential threats to democracy itself. These are critical questions in the context of the widening gulf between peoples and states. The struggle between global capitalism and states for power over public resources, and the concentration of capital on a new level that is apparently outside the effective control of the state machinery. While these circumstances have indeed given rise to a new plurality of sites of resistance, social groupings, movements, and subcultures, what possibilities exist under these circumstances to move towards a more just and equitable society? These are some of the broad questions that underlie my presentation, and I'm not promising any answers. Uh, To understand the present though, we first need to understand the past. I will thus begin with a brief overview of the historical evolution of the concept of international order and its building block, the national state. In doing so, I will step back from dominant stories about the liberal international order to examine what is left out in dominant accounts of an international order and why this matters, not only for understanding the past, but also for imagining alternatives for our collective futures. The liberal international order is both a description and an aspiration. As a description, The concept describes a set of global rule-based structured relationships based on political liberalism, economic liberalism, and liberal internationalism since the late 1940s. As an aspiration, it refers to the foreign policy of major powers and their alliance building through economic institutions, security organizations, political and liberal norms, international aid, and other tools. Thus, the concept of international order focuses our attention on the assumptions, rules, conventions, and institutions that configure political geographies and the shifting relationships between national states and other international actors in contemporary times. International relations theory typically views the international order through the lens of the sovereign state which it argues came into being in Europe in 1648 with the peace of Westphalia, then spread across the world through European colonization and then through the integration of post-colonial states into the international state system in the second half of the 20th century. The modern state evolved, so the dominant argument goes, because European territories and principalities were involved in constant warfare and needed stable boundaries and a monopoly on violence to control internal affairs, including the collection of revenues and to build armies to repel external threats. The pivotal role of external threats, wars and violence is a recurring theme in diverse studies of state formation. From the accounts of the birth of European national states to sweeping narratives of global history, two dominant prescriptions for state building in conflict-torn regions. The long list of foreign intrusions into countries in South America, the Middle East, Africa, and Asia in order to impose regime change demonstrates the entrenchment of this perspective in the foreign policy of dominant states, even in the 21st century. Erroneously though, Academic analysts and policymakers alike appear to ignore the fact that this particular conception of the international order has only been the dominant model in the past 70 odd years. Stepping back into history, for instance, we can see that the antecedents of the current international system date back a few millennia. For much of their long history, The diverse regions of China, India, the Middle East, the Americas, Polynesia, and Africa were multi-state systems that Europe only began to resemble in the early modern period starting in the 16th century. Similar to Europe, these diverse political systems also experienced the disintegration of feudal hierarchies, prevalence of wars, conditions of international anarchy, emergence of sovereign territorial states, configuration of the balance of power, development of a centralized bureaucracy, birth of state society bargains, expansion of international trade, and other familiar phenomena of international and domestic politics. Despite such storied history of the evolution of the state in many parts of the world, political theorists appear to take for granted checks and balances in European politics while assuming coercive universal empires in non-Western regions. This tendency obscures the role of local ecology, technology, demographics, population movement, and other factors in the evolution and nature of state formation in the vast majority of the world. This narrowly focused narrative also obscures the fact that modern state formation in Europe coincided with the period of colonial expansion and domination over vast parts of the rest of the world. The colonization and subjugation of vast territories and populations in the global south and in the so-called new world where diverse indigenous populations were robbed of their territories cultures, resources, and dignity, led to unprecedented transfer of vast wealth, resources, and people materially and politically benefiting modern state formation in European nations. Additionally, colonial extractions also disrupted the processes of state formation in occupied regions, which continues to profoundly influence the nature and possibilities of politics in the present. Using this singular version of liberal international order then as the default prevents us from engaging with the tensions, contradictions, and dilemmas that exist among and between different visions of order generally and international orders specifically. Most importantly, it constrains our ability to have imaginative conversations about our collective future to develop just and sustainable strategies and policies. So why is this overwhelming evidence ignored in mainstream studies of historical and contemporary state formation? And how does this narrow focus affect our understanding of the evolution of the international order and norms? Most importantly, what do we miss by not paying attention to the diversity of the origins of the national state? and the drivers of the international order? Additionally, in an era of global risks and opportunities, how do we see beyond the neoliberal state as the only organization of life on the planet? To explore these questions, we will need to examine the building blocks of how we understand international order or orders. The dominant theories of international order such as realism and liberalism, despite their differences, assume that states are self-interested actors who compete for power and that the international order requires a stable balance of power among dominant states. This liberal international order was represented both in theory and in practice as being locked in a cold war against anti-democratic and anti-capitalist regimes Especially the United uh, sorry, especially the Soviet Union and its allies Excuse me. <clears throat> Many international relations scholars and politicians thus celebrated the unanticipated collapse of the Soviet Union at the end of the 20th century as an affirmation of the liberal international order, which no longer engaged in a Cold War would generate a peace dividend of global peace and prosperity. Instead, the 21st century so far has been characterized by global financial, political, health, and environmental crises as we know. Neither realism nor liberalism accounted for the end of the Cold War, nor does their excessive focus on national states provide effective tools of analysis or solutions in the current era. Consequently, a third approach, constructivism, has gained ground since the end of the Cold War. It challenges international relations theory's singular focus on national states and its attendant deterministic claims about human nature, national states, or the essence of world politics. Rather, constructivists describe the international order as being socially and historically constructed, and interrogate dominant interpretations of the status quo by questioning assumptions about power and politics. Focusing on the complex relationships of actors, social norms, interests, and identities, constructivism shows that state behavior is shaped not only by material power and wealth, but also by ideas, identities, and norms. By applying this perspective, we can see that international realities are not fixed in a timeless struggle for dominance, but rather always shifting. A brief look at some of the foundational concepts of the international order proves the validity of the constructivist approach and shows how powerful actors and ideas have shaped and reshaped the very nature of international order over time and how this can help us find our way forward. In conventional accounts of the quest for a peaceful and orderly world, international order is represented as a contest between freedom and order, or more formally, between E.S. Naturale, the natural law based on peace and harmony with freedom, and E.S. Gentium, the law of nations, driven by war and conflict. The pinnacle of an international order was supposed to be the cosmopolitan ideal, or the cultivation of a universal community of global citizens, literally as well as metaphorically. This ideal subsequently informed theories and concepts such as social contract, civil law, international law, human rights and public good, which are particularly relevant in this era of globalization. While undoubtedly creating the foundation for contemporary international norms and institutions for cooperation and global governance, this frame of thought also paved the way for the legal constructions of the allegedly uncivilized other. And by extension, denying the possibility that the colonized regions were sovereign. The application of many of these principles was in the form of exceptions, which were used to justify imperialism, colonization and slavery. These exceptions supported the construction of a non-European exotic, uncivilized and barbaric other from the middle ages to the most recent wars on terror. Thus for instance, an exception was made to the rights of the enslaved people, not just in ancient Rome but also in modern national states. Since slavery is a human produced condition, it was not considered a natural law, but was considered an acceptable part of the E.S. Gentium. This logic was used to institutionalize slavery in the Americas, and it was later codified into colonial law. Although many of the framers of the U.S. Constitution considered slavery a breach of the natural law, it nevertheless became part of the E.S. Gentium and the civil law of the US system. Such exceptions continue to be a significant cause of contemporary structural inequalities along racial lines, not just in the United States, but also elsewhere. Similarly, the exceptions to the law of nations was a significant tool of expansion during the era of colonization in various parts of the world, European colonization in North America, for instance, was accomplished in part by negotiating treaties with diverse indigenous nations that populated the continent for millennia. The first treaties in North America were negotiated between the Dutch and the Iroquois in 1613, and subsequently by the British and their successor settler states elaborate debates among 16th and 17th century European political thinkers on the status of indigenous peoples relative to the law of nations provided the justification for the conquest and subjugation of indigenous peoples without treaty making around the world. The British Privy Privy Council, for example, concluded that the Australian continent was terra nullis or unoccupied because its indigenous peoples did not constitute peoples with discernible governments capable of asserting proprietary rights to land and resources. Such patterns continued into the 1800s as the imperial agents of Europe scrambled to colonize territories and extract resources in Asia and Africa in the late 1800s, often signing treaties of friendship and tribute with local kings, chiefs, and headmen. Unsurprisingly, despite the establishment of the UN Charter in 1945 and its recognition of the principle of self-determination for national states, conquest remained a justification for dominance over indigenous peoples until very recently. Indigenous assertions of sovereignty over land and resources, particularly in conjunction with existing treaties continue to be seen by settler states as a threat to national unity and territorial integrity. The central issue raised by indigenous people's political resistance is how to achieve social justice in indigenous state relations, both in settler states such as Canada and the United States, as well as in post-colonial states that came into existence often with imposed and contested boundaries in the second half of the 20th century. The spirit and intent of self-determination is to liberate people politically, socially, economically, and culturally subjugated by colonial rule. In practice though, the hesitancy to secure entitlement to self-determination for indigenous peoples follows not from any normative conflicts, but rather from the lack of political will on the part of the states to rectify the past exceptions to E.S. Gentium. This is one of the many examples of the persistence of colonial forms of power and the continuing exercise of racism in world politics, both internally in terms of access to upward social mobility and political voice and internationally in the arenas of resource distribution and political clout. The continuation of this pattern can also be seen in the world's response to the still unfolding global health and climate crises. Both the pandemic and and climate change are shattering lives and economies, fraying social cohesion and solidarities, and testing the liberal international order's capacity to manage collective crises. The worldwide COVID death toll just crossed 5 million people which is a number eerily similar to the number of global climate change related mortality per annum. And this does not even take into account the number of deaths per annum related to air and water pollution. The difference in the two crises is that nearly 75% of the climate change related fatalities are happening in Asian and African countries while the coronavirus has transcended the global North-South barrier. In looking for an answer to how did we get here, the concepts mentioned earlier provide a pattern of leading powers creating and maintaining dominance in the international order. Thus, despite the existence of tools of international cooperation in multilateral institutions, norms, regimes, and technologies, The scope of the international agenda confined to wealth, power, and hegemony has kept the international system on a course that is constantly conflicted. Nevertheless, contemporary global, ecological, financial, technological, and sociopolitical risks have created an urgent imperative to confront planetary problems cooperatively. Additionally, we can argue that globalization, transnational mobility, And mass media are creating a new transnational reality that cannot be contained within the frame of the national state, requiring a shift from a national to a global or cosmopolitan outlook. As we have seen though, globalization without democracy not only has the problem of legitimization, but it can also turn against democracy. We witness this in the co evolution of imperialist and colonial structures and laws in the past, and in the ever greater tension between democratic principles and practices in the context of the neoliberal political economic order in the present. A market society enabled by the institutions of the liberal international order then, is not only proving to be economically um, unsustainable, but also destructive to democratic institutions and the natural context within which everything inhabits. Where all policy and action in contemporary political and economic organization is driven by an amoral economic ideology that subordinates all social, political, ecological and ethical values to an economic rationality. Where it is taken for granted that economic growth is linear and infinite, and that relentless globalization is inevitable, whereby any opposition to marketization and financialization in any domestic or international sector are doomed to fail, even if these prevailing systems have placed the human society on a course to disaster. These assumptions have formed the basis of action for public policymakers as well as business managers, shaping issues as diverse as taxation, labor legislation, levels of social spending, privacy rights, and environmental policies. These notions then also serve to legitimize privatization and deregulation, unfettered capitalism, as well as bigoted and unjust institutions and patterns of action, which characterize the contemporary political economy. Despite these trends, the Westphalian state-centric perspectives continue to dominate the imagination of scholars and policymakers. Indeed, imagination itself implies the nation, making it hard to see the international from anything other than state-centric lenses. Examining statehood alone, however, leaves much that goes on within and outside of formal state institutions invisible, excuse me. Sorry. A full grasp of the mechanisms of global politics is only possible once analysis moves beyond the official statements or formal acts of governments and diplomatic chancelleries and into the realms of the private, legal, social, financial relations that undergrid and support state action. Most importantly, the way forward requires us to challenge the large mythical structure of history we have deployed for the past few centuries by engaging with the flood of new anthropological and archeological evidence that can reshape our notions of what a complex and organized society can look like. These recent findings point to radically different forms of society and forgotten ways of being human and living together in large numbers. We are finding evidence of garden cities without centers governed in truly democratic ways in the Amazon region of societies on the west coast of Turtle Island that adapted with the seasons, switching freely between modes of livelihood and organization, egalitarian as well as hierarchical. We now know that the world's first city dwellers did not always leave a harsh footprint on the environment or on each other. There is evidence of coalitions and confederacies the size of empires held together by cooperation and consensus, not by force. Rediscovering these alternative forms of political and economic organization requires moving beyond the prevailing institutionalized amnesia of international relations theory and recognizing past models of cooperation and coexistence. In this vein, we can also not continue to omit the diversity of traditions such as the Indian Ocean, Islamic, Chinese, and indigenous conceptions of the world order, which could have normative bearings on contemporary global issues. In this context, the universality of the cosmopolitan ideal beyond the Greek usage is very instructive, very often assumed as objects of cosmopolitan scrutiny and not its source. Many regions in the world nevertheless add to the plurality to the notion of cosmopolitanism. The ancient Indian concept of Vasudeva Kutumbakam, the earth is one family for instance, expands the concept of cosmopolitanism beyond national and anthropocentric references. Similarly, the indigenous concept of all my relations is an encouragement for all humans to accept the responsibilities we have as the universal family by living with all beings in reciprocal harmony. Such holistic traditions conceptualize the world the world order beyond human-centric categorizations in economic terms and provide alternatives to the language of instrumental rationality, economic efficiency, political expediency, and social engineering. Particularly since While the strength and the survival of a nation depends on the readiness of each member of the nation to sacrifice their life for it, in the cosmopolitan conception, the interest in the survival of all becomes the self-interest of each individual. These critical perspectives are thus fundamental to developing decolonial approaches to contemporary social and political inquiry. Broadening our historical and conceptual lens also allows us to see that the assumptions underlying the nature of the national and the international are more historical rather than logical. Most non-Western traditions view world history as essentially cyclical, recognizing progress and regress in world order, and not as an indefinite progression model. In these traditions, world order is more than a theory, It is an autonomous, continual and all embracing process in which the whole rather than its parts and circumstances takes analytic priority. This is equally true of state formation theories and the principles guiding the international order. As global crises and technologies radically transform the ways that people, communities and states interact with, communicate and perceive the international order we may be on the verge of the next transformative period of human civilization. In this context, it is imperative to understand that the costs and benefits of the contemporary uh, global order are also vastly unequal. For example, the costs of the climate crisis, wealth inequality and disease fall on the shoulders of of those least responsible and most vulnerable while the benefits continue to flow to the most wealthy and powerful. Considering this, we need creative and transformative solutions to global problems and a just and sustainable future rather than the war violence force logic of the existing theories of state formation and a spatially and historically narrow conception of the international order. The alternative to a compelling collective driven by cosmopolitan ideals is an international order that is filled with narrowly defined zones of exclusion at war with one another. Thank you. This is, uh, I'm just going to stop sharing my slide. Uh, Use the right one. So um, that was my presentation. I really need to use uh, a PowerPoint and, and written materials to keep myself on track and, and, uh, and stay on track. So, so thank you for your patience uh, in, in listening to the presentation. I really look forward to hearing comments from uh, the discussants and uh, the questions from the audience.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Srivastava for this wonderful and fascinating presentation. And um, I truly enjoyed it and I have so many questions and I hope that I have some time uh, towards the end to ask my my questions to you. So, so grateful for your presentation. I would straight away uh, move on to the discussions and I would like to invite Professor Ashok Acharya to uh, share his views on the presentation and also his perspectives on the topic.
1: Sir, over to you.
4: Thank you so much. Uh, It was uh, uh, also a a great pleasure listening to uh, Professor Minol Srivastava. There's hardly anything that I disagree with. You know, (laughs) she just painted a very, uh, uh, you know, um, a very wholesome picture, a very bold picture and a, and a, and a big picture, you know, going by, back to the past and then presenting a kind of an alternative cosmopolitan future for us. I I, I can't agree more. I suspect somewhere, Professor Srivastar, there's a book coming out on, on the entire theme that you're <laughs> dwelling on. And, and it will it, it'll be, it'll be a huge pleasure to start reading it. And in fact, if you haven't thought about it, I must prod you towards writing one, uh, wherein you could bring in all these different aspects because they just refuse to be contained within one lecture of twenty-five or thirty minutes. There are many, many things that have uh, gone in your lecture, and uh, this was this was terrific. I, I, I completely, um, I, I completely agree with your assessment of uh, how things are, and uh, especially in your a uh, large critique of what we might call the liberal international order so you know so you, you, you try to correct the uh, the standard western understandings of uh, the uh, liberal international order by stretching it back in time and then saying that what kinds of uh, uh, you know uh, exclusions violences wars you know that uh, that went into the making of states and into the construction of this, uh, uh, this uh, liberal order uh, that we inhabit today, and in many ways, this is a uh, you know we are looking at uh, different forms of structural historical injustice, embedded very much embedded into the so-called you know the liberal international orders, uh, so to say. I'm 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 uh, and you know. You know, it's, it's seldom that you come across IR specialists who close off their dialogue with uh, a call for uh, a certain kind of a cosmopolitan vision. You know, it's, it's very rare. Uh, I, I must also tell you this, and I must congratulate you. For, so you basically, you know, you gladdened me when you were speaking about that cosmopolitan vision. There's very few, most of the IR scholars, as you rightly pointed out, you know, are locked between, you know, the realist liberal game and all that and uh, uh, and in many ways can't just figure out you know that uh, that there is there is that, that there is a bigger and a more complex picture of reality that they refuse to acknowledge and they refuse to you know engage with and um, uh, and, and so uh, it's, it's it's very uh, nice to hear from you about the cosmopolitan vision however you know uh, at the uh, to the point of almost trying to you know um, um, Corroborate and uh, and to duplicate your arguments, but in a slightly different way. Uh, uh, this is how I would like to look at things. And one of the things that I would uh, uh, stress upon is uh, how we need to uh, think beyond, you know, this whole idea of international. So there is there is a certain way in how your conversation ended by talking about a a different vision for that international order. I would somewhere, or or even a world order for that matter. And uh, uh, for for, for the sort of narrative that you have depicted, you know, I would be very cautious about the words we use. And so uh, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't speak anything about international because we know how the nation, national states or nation states have formed themselves so they have come into being and often at times you know ignoring you know the, uh, the local ecologies uh, in the process of state formation in large parts of the world uh, have been ignored. So the, the, these are things and, and if you try to look at these particular things you know we are not basically looking at states per se, but you know at, in, in a different context but something that I don't agree with you know Rawls calls them the peoples, You know, so we are looking at the history of peoples in order to reconceive a kind of a cosmopolitan global order i would insist you know so i wouldn't call it a international because we began your entire discussion by throwing light on some of the global issues and problems of uh, of inequality of exclusion and all that and then we uh, got into this whole uh, uh, you know narrative of understanding where this liberal international order comes from and what a stark uh, you know contrast is there that exists between the contemporary global issues and problems and the sort of international order or the liberal international order that uh, uh, that has been thrust upon us for centuries now so uh, if if i have to you know uh, uh, give a critique of the liberal international order and um, uh, and um, uh, i will try to limit myself to another 6 7 minutes only uh, you know I think, you know, let's look at some of the building blocks of what the liberal international order are all about. You know, we, we, on, on, at, at one hand, we would say, you know, maybe firstly, we could say that uh, uh, international law um, and agreements accompanied by certain kinds of international organizations do create an international system. You know, and, and and this is one of the, you know, so which creates something like the United Nations is one, you know, one part of that, one part of that foundational moment of an uh, international liberal order, which is why I wouldn't stretch myself back so much back in history. So I would look at, you know, the last 70 uh, odd years, or, uh, you know, uh, that is, uh, or 75 odd years. Uh, that is since the collapse of the, uh, you know, uh, since the, uh, uh, the end of the second Cold War in a way. Uh and and, and and we have looked at the United Nations as one of the uh, foundations or uh, international law organizations, uh, agreements between uh, nation states in the last 70 years or so. We would find that, okay, so it's been a kind of a bag of mixed success, I would say. In many ways we have succeeded, in many ways we have actually failed. And the question that comes up to be answered is, uh, what must be the new, a new liberal agenda be for international law and organizations, including something like the United Nations? Uh, I won't try to answer this question, but I will just trace this question and then we will come back to some of these issues gradually. The second part of that foundation would be, you know, uh, what we thought, and, and this is part of the, the most problematic part of the, the, uh, the neoliberal, or, uh, sorry, the uh, liberal international order, is the spread of free trade and capitalism, you know, uh, um, uh, uh, through the uh, efforts of powerful liberal states and international organizations and the creation of, uh, you know, uh, multilateral bodies such as the WTO, the IMF, the World Bank, you know, in hopes of creating an open market-based international economic system. The, the, the contrasting uh, question to this is: uh, in the last 60, 70 years, you know, what have we achieved in these things? And uh, you know, what kind of a question can we pose back now? Now we know that you know uh, is uh, the world is largely inequitous in many ways, and there are you know uh, you know large degrees of very concentrated inequalities that exist all around us, and and then that doesn't you know it really. We are at a point where we ask this question at whose behest do organizations such as the WTO, IMF, and World Bank work? Right. And, you know, so please think along with me, and then I will, you know, we will we'll come to uh, some moment, you know, some sort of a conclusion on this. And the third element of the liberal international order is what we might call, you know, some of those international norms, you know or lib- those liberal norms that favor, we think, uh, you know, a certain amount of international cooperation, some norms about human rights, democracy, and rule of law, right? And, and in the last, uh, uh, and in this particular century, we know that we have also been faced with certain kinds of disorders. There's a loss of faith in democracy. There's a backsliding of democracy. There is a rise in authoritarian populist regimes, and so on. But the more important question is, do these norms, as Professor Srivastava, you know, somewhere did point out, uh, that do these norms reflect the interests and aspirations of the global South? And the more troubling question that we we need to ask, and that is something that I believe uh, remains somewhat unanswered, in Professor Srivastava's, you know, treatment of the subject, is how might we move from orders, you know, understood as maybe ruled, governed relations across a cluster of international institutions between nation states to inclusive global norms. How might we move from orders to inclusive global norms, just to think about cosmopolitanism as an alternative doesn't really help. You know, We really need some kind of a roadmap of how do we move beyond orders to more inclusionary visions and norms as such, because we need these norms. We need to replace the existing norms that have already been underwritten by some of the most powerful states. So if we go back to these questions, then, Uh, 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 what must be a new liberal agenda for international law and organizations. To be short, we could say that the new liberal agenda be a little more cosmopolitan. So I agree with you, Professor Srivastava there. At whose behest do organizations such as WTO, IMF and World Bank work, and basically we can all see through that, that the work for the very rich and powerful nation states. Do these norms reflect the interests and aspirations of the global South? We know the answer, it's a resounding no that no, these, these norms have been created by others and that they don't resonate with our lives. And how might we move from orders to inclusive global norms is something I will leave for the moment because even frankly, I don't even have an answer to this. You know, Although I'm trying to somewhere come around to formulating a certain kind of a response. So we might say at the end that the liberal international order as conceived especially during the cold war and ever since has been of the americans by the americans and for the americans you know and then then we are taking american work a little more you know uh, broadly and we are looking at and then we have been faced by very very serious disorders you know especially with globalization and around the last decade of the 20th century but ever since in the 21st century you know uh, um, the disorders have been more about you know the growing gap between uh, uh, between the liberal on the one hand and the international uh, through an orchestrated you know largely uh, american orchestrated war on terror and the um, um, you know and, and and this leads and paves the way to the backsliding of democracies worldwide the rise in authoritarian populist regimes and of course you know certain kinds of inadequacies of collective action issues let us say with regard to climate change for instance and we just do not know what those mechanisms and norms might there be, or what kind of alternative global institutions do we need to have in order to tackle some of the very pressing contemporary global problems that we face now. So what would imagining the future might mean? So, and I will be, you know, uh, I will just end in two minutes. And for me, I don't see that, you know, I, I think I, I need to say here that this, this, this future cannot be a realistic utopia, that is, of trying to craft a utopia to fit into the realist box of, you know, the realistic box of power politics. So we have, we have to somewhere discard any kinds of these realistic utopian uh, imaginations of the future. But it also means, as Professor Sivasta very rightly points out, entails an acknowledgement of a pluralist world the plural imaginations of a liberal utopia or you know liberal slash cosmopolitan utopia that is more in tune with the needs and aspirations of the global south and third i would say that what needs to distinguish between the idea of an order howsoever broad-based it may be from that of justice that addresses issues of inequality what do i have in mind you know what I have in mind, and, and I'm trying to just sum up that we need a new liberal utopia, a new norms and a new set of institutions and the, you know, and, and uh, then the, the climate talks were ample proof why we need such a new set of things, you know, a utopia a norms and a set of institutions and, you know, we are almost in our critique of this you know the the, the liberal international order or you call it even the neoliberal international order we know very well that a new global order and so i won't talk about international order any longer a new global order needs to be in sync with the conception of background justice now you might come back to me and say that who again constructs this idea of justice well i think the wellsprings of such a new understanding or a vision of justice has also again to come from those who have suffered injustices in the last couple of uh, centuries, decades, or so on and so forth. But it was wonderful listening to you, Professor Srivastava. And I uh, hope to see the book round the corner sometime soon. But uh, thank you, thanks organizers for this opportunity. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you, thank you, Professor Acharya, for your wonderful insights. I'm sure that this has re- this will really lead to further responses from uh, Meenal, ma'am. And now I'd like to invite Dr. Dia Mirza for her remarks over uh,
3: Thank you so much. Thank you, Professor Srivastava. Uh, I have the unenviable task of speaking after Professor Srivastava and after Professor Acharya. And I think I'll have to struggle to find something something meaningful. But I have a couple of things to say. Uh, first of all, it's a great presentation. And it was a really, you really packed in a lot within 13 minutes. And that's very uh, admirable. So there are a couple of things that I wanted to flag. Um, I think the first thing which... Um, The takeaway, um, also a great bridge to pick up where you left off is the role of international law. And, you know, took me back to my master's uh, days at JNU. So we share that with Professor Anand and and talking about how law creates uh, this legal fiction of Real people who have legal rights and people who don't, and much of what you said about the aborigines, about the rights of the indigenous, the Native Americans being completely marginalized was rested upon this legal, this new legal normative order. So I think the first part is the entire hegemony of international law and the fact that uh, it simply doesn't recognize, uh, has not recognized uh, the rights of the indigenous, the rights of the... Uh, the jeans, and uh, that is linked to the second point that I want to make about the ability to make treaties. So I really liked your slide on where you juxtaposed the East India Company uh, signing a treaty with, uh, I think it was Shah Alam, and uh, the, this painting of these uh, children being snatched from their mothers. And the ability to make a treaty really rested upon, I mean, that's what the British Empire rested upon. And uh, I was reading about Jeremy Bentham's, um, when he's talking about uh, uh, a new legal order, he's talking about constitutionalism. And yet at the same time, he ignores the aborigines of Australia completely. So it also compels me to ask you that in the absence of the ability to make a treaty and the fact that this Ability this right is assigned to states and uh, primarily how in this utopian future that we're imagining, how are the dispossessed, how are the marginalized uh, going to frame treaties uh, to negotiate a world order, so the question really is are they even at the table to you know imagine a new world order. which takes me uh, to my third point which is uh, i think a major area which i would like more flesh and more meat on uh, i apologize if there's any anybody's a vegetarian here but uh, something more which i would like to know of is the role of a corporation so again the east india company and the role the, the british empire rests upon this foundation, which the East India Company as a private corporation, uh, negotiates, treaties, uh, literally, you know, knits out an empire, which then the British crown, you know, conveniently takes over. And then cut to 200 years later, you have the manipulation of data, the creation of big data and uh, uh, international corporations, Facebook, which is not accountable to anybody. So I was just thinking if you could also fill in the gaps there about how uh, private corporations play our stakeholders as non-state entities are uh, hugely powerful, hugely unaccountable. Uh, uh, they have a peculiar privileged relationship with states and capitalism, and how would you then loop that into this, uh, this utopia. And uh, just to wrap things up, I think um, Since you mentioned, I love that phrase, imaginative conversations. Uh, So just to add to that, uh, I think uh, any sort of new order to me must have a feminist agenda, which is which we start from home, where the new deals or the new stakeholders have to include uh, women as negotiators, women as participants, women as uh, um, speakers, and uh, Redistributing uh, uh, a social order, redistributing property, and I think that would be something that I would um, urge you to consider in your book, which I, uh, which I think is already is scheduled to be published, oh, Professor Acharya. I just looked it up. I think it's so. Congratulations on that. So um, yeah, I think that's what uh, I'd like to say. But great presentation, and thank you so much, and plenty to chew upon.
0: True, definitely plenty to chew upon. So I would like to thank you so much, Dr. Priya for your uh, remarks and for your comments. I would like to invite uh, Professor Srivastava for her response to the discussants
2: remarks. Thank you so much. And thank you to both Ashok and Priya for for your remarks. Um, Ashok, to answer your question, um, there is a book chapter that, kind of uh, explains and expands on some of what I presented today, and it has a very extensive reference list. So uh, that book chapter is uh, forthcoming in the next few, hopefully, months uh, or sooner, hopefully before the end of this year. Um, so I, I'll be happy to share that that with whoever is interested. Um, as far as book a book on this goes, um, so in my 25 years as an academic, one of the things I've come to realize is that we are so used to singing to the choir. We are kind of really talking only amongst ourselves when we write academic books, um, including journal articles many times. Um, And I think we need to change that. I think those of us uh, who have the luxury to speak more widely, those of us who have established our academic credentials in particular, owe it to ourselves, to our disciplines, to our students and to fellow citizens to actually speak more widely, write more widely. So I have actually decided to not write another textbook (laughs) Uh, and that I will continue to to, contribute chapters to, to textbooks that I can see are very progressive and inclusive. But in terms of my academic writing, I have very consciously made a decision to make my academic understanding accessible and to not just speak to my peers, but to speak to people who matter, for whom these things matter. It matters to all of us, but uh, particularly to, to have it out in the public domain as conversations is very important because as you know, the, if we are so polarized right now that there is no bridge. There is no, no real conversation happening. So to break that, I think it is up to us to start these conversations. So I I would invite all of us here to contribute to conversations uh, in whatever way possible and in however inclusively possible. Um, So, uh, and then you talked about a roadmap to the new norms of cosmopolitanism. Uh, and, and you also mentioned uh, you know, the hegemony or the hegemonic powers that this is, you sort of summed it up by saying it's uh, by America for Americans. But I would like to actually disagree there respectfully and say um, it, it isn't necessarily because Americans are also struggling right now. The majority of, I mean, the, the, the kind of inequality that America is witnessing is also really shocking It is like the global South lives in America as well right now. So we have to consider that as well when we consider questions of the international or global order, that who are nation states working for? What is nation state, what is this relationship? And this goes back to Priya's question as well, when you talk about the the role of corporations. So states have essentially become facilitators of big business whether internally in terms of how they are changing their domestic rules or externally, how they're applying foreign policy measures to make space for their corporations to, to do business, uh, whether it's uh, you know, through bilateral relations or in their advocacy within WTO. So who really is looking after public interest? That is a very big question And it is not just a question that that should be asked in a particular context. This is a question that is valid in the global North and the global South. That public interest is now being uh, completely marginalized. So the public is being marginalized, whether they are living in places like India or in places like Canada or or the United States. So, and this is where I feel that the international relations debate has to also step away from the nations to the public in that way. And that's where, when I talk about a cosmopolitan ideal, that is what I'm talking about. So I would give you an example of uh, what I'm seeing in terms of the, the COP26, the climate conference that's happening right now. I feel no hope looking at what's happening within the walls of those conference facilities. Um, It doesn't matter how much Global South will be able to rest in terms of promises and pledges. We know the history of pledges is that it never materializes. So we can do all kinds of negotiations within that constructed framework that we find ourselves in. But what does give me hope is what's happening outside of those conference venues. The protests, the public mobilization, young people mobilizing, And not just in the global global north, but also in the global south. That's what gives me hope. So to bring people back into our conversations of international and global is very important. And we're not doing enough of that. So part of the, the whole objective of my talk was to bring people back in, communities back in. Uh, and for that again like I said we have historical examples to show that that is how it has worked it's only in the last 70 odd years that we have put people aside and made nations the center of the global order but in the past we have seen smaller communities that were urban and did function very well they had their problems they had they had issues but at the same time if you look at the longer history, they survive longer than we are likely to survive in the current order. <laughs> so I do feel that, uh, you know, we have a lot of um, possibility of learning from these historical examples, and there is a lot more evidence now. Unfortunately, international relations isn't engaging with a lot of it, but if you look beyond the borders of the discipline of international relations, there is a lot that's out there that we can Used to broaden our horizons within international relations as a discipline. So that's, uh, you know, sort of kind of a response both to you,
4: Ashok, but also a little bit in my presentation
2: that international law uh, has been applied in, you know, through its exception in ways that obviously have. Sorry, I was getting a message. Uh, I hope everyone can still see or hear me. Yes,
3: yes, yes, yes. yes, sorry. Um,
2: The the marginalization of of people, the um, dispossession of people through international law is very well documented. And we know that that continues to this day, that laws are used to dispossess people. So again, uh, that question is an open one that, you know, How, how do we even change that do they have a seat at the table, and I do feel that we've made some progress in that respect in terms of you know indigenous rights in particular around the world, Um, at least there is, uh, you know, a a framework that is used as a leverage to have conversations like that we are seeing that in Canada in a big way, um, both because of the UN uh, UN drip as well as the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that was established in Canada. Its uh, findings came out in 2015, but that has provided a a leverage for a political leverage, I would say, for not only uh, increasing a national conversation along those issues, but actually for action. So in the last uh, six, seven years, I have seen a lot of change in public conversations about these issues, but also in terms of Concrete action in terms of, uh, you know, and I will only speak in terms of the academy because I'm a part of the academy, and I'm seeing that in uh, in how we are approaching decolonization and indigenization within our institutions. These are no longer things that uh, were not talked about. They, if you spoke about any of these things, you were considered uh, too radical. Not anymore. This is part of mainstream conversation now. So there is definitely a shift happening in uh, you know, with the aid of these uh, frameworks that exist, but I'm not saying that you know, that's all there is to it. I'm saying that at least there is a start, that at least it provides you with some incentive to, to get you that seat at the table. But yes, it's not going to be enough, not until there is uh, you know, um, there is the political will to make change Uh, But also where does that political will come from? It comes from people's mobilization. So, uh, you know, unless that happens, nothing will shift. And here again, we saw that we we are seeing an incredible mobilization, uh, political mobilization in the indigenous populations here, which is so amazing to watch. Um, And and it is paying dividends in, in, in ways that were totally unexpected. So again there's a lot of literature about that which I'd be happy to share uh, uh, with anyone who's interested uh, it's a It's a big question and I don't have an answer to that except to say that I, f- I feel hopeful with the possibility of using some of these structures to to open the area wider for f- uh, you know better participation and and there then again is the question about uh, you you mentioned feminism and I feel that um in these days and times, you have to be an anti-castist and a a pro-feminist. And you you have to be, there is no no option to that. Um, When I teach my courses, I I center three things in there. I center uh, feminism, environmentalism, and indigenous perspectives, because these are things that make you see any of these old, you know, quite boring ideas in totally new light and do give you more hope. So um, I would encourage you to look, look at, uh, you know, applying some of these perspectives in your own thinking and teaching and, and writing to try and see, uh, you know, to see with fresh eyes, with fresh perspectives, because we are so used to this, this canon that we are all supposed to keep repeating Um, But it's not providing any answers. It's not even letting us see the full picture. To get a fuller picture, we do need to uh, employ some of these wider perspectives that do exist, they are out there, but it is a a bit of work sometimes to find them and to incorporate them in our thinking. But it's it's the most purposeful thing we will do. So we should do more of that. I don't know if I answered your question, Priya, but... (laughs)
3: Yes, you did. And more than that, I think you filled me with zest and I think that's far more important, so yeah. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, I'm a convert. <laughs> Excellent.
0: So good. Uh, thank you, Professor, uh, for your uh, wonderful response. And uh, it is really, uh, I mean, it really leaves a lot of food for thought and introspection. And that's how perhaps we could bring people into the whole uh, discourse of um, this uh, liberal internationalism, and especially when you spoke about uh, cities, uh, Professor Priya, uh, Professor uh, Meenal, um, we have a question from uh, Mr. Samir Unhale. He is uh, watching us live on uh, Facebook. He is the Joint Commissioner, Department of Municipal Administration, in the Government of Maharashtra, who asks, uh, or rather, seeks to explore the role. Uh, of cities in the evolving patterns of global interrelationships. Um, Would you like to respond
3: to that?
2: Um, Sure, I'll try. Um, So cities are really very interesting because in some ways, if you look around the world, even in the most, um, even in the worst of the Trump era, the most progressive policies were coming out of cities. So even that, was an interesting trend that was happening. We're seeing that here in in Canada as well that even in the more conservative provinces, the most progressive policies still come out of cities. So there is something going on there and perhaps that again points to the fact that people are more involved like you know because of the a certain critical mass of people, you know cities have a certain structure and a certain budget and and a certain power that allows them to do certain things on their own and that Gives them a totally different character from the wider framework within which they find themselves, you can see that in places like Barcelona, you're seeing that in. uh, In a lot of examples across the world, where you can see that cities can play a very positive role in addressing some of these questions that the nation state is not able to answer because they are trapped in that system, uh, you know of, of being facilitators of corporations. But cities can step away from it. I'm not suggesting that cities uh, are not doing that as well because yes, cities uh, are also beholden to corporations to quite an extent, but uh, but there is a lot of example of cities actually proving uh, to be uh, conduits for some very progressive change, some very inclusive changes. So uh, I'm not sure if that's what you were asking for in terms of the city's role, in terms of the cosmopolitan Uh, future that uh, that I'm suggesting we we should be working towards. Um, But of course, cities are also part of some of the problems. (laughs) So uh, I'm I'm not sure exactly if I answered your question.
0: Sure. Thank you so much, Professor, for your response. And I'm sure this would, again, lead to further discussions. And uh, um, uh, yeah, so um, there is a question. There are actually two questions from the audience. Uh, One is uh, by Professor Ashok Acharya's student, uh, Anjali, uh, who asks uh, you that given the historical injustices and consequent unequal world structures, be it the north-south, city countryside, or producer-reproducer, how far do you think that an unconditional universal basic income with an additional wage for reproduction can lead the way to the background justice? Um, and by doing so in the countries of the South, can we lead a way where the change moves from the South to the North and thus mm-hmm. could further reinvent the present global norms? This is very interesting. So could you please respond to it?
2: Thank you. It is very interesting. And, uh, and again, to give you some hope in this current climate of bloom and doom, um, one of the things that the pandemic did was it made us um, a lot of these issues that we thought uh, were not even at the table, they were non-negotiable like the universal basic income and universal healthcare and so on. During the pandemic, we saw that it can be done. It was done. It was done around the world. So what it also did was it pushed those conversations to the forefront. So in Canada, for instance, uh, a a bill was introduced. Uh, Unfortunately, it had to be shelved because our prime minister decided to Hold an election, and uh, you know that kind of killed the bill. But it is not dead. It will come back because there is a lot of public support for it. Um, there's also a lot of examples of uh, you know in uh, very specific periods in specific areas where universal basic income has been experimented with very successfully. So we have a lot of data out there that shows that universal basic income can actually help a lot in, in a lot of ways, not just in terms of you know, uh, justice and redistribution, but also in longer term, uh, you know in terms of economic and, and social issues. So that debate I believe has been ongoing for some time and the experience of the pandemic has probably given it a lot more uh, kind of a, a fillip, a, a lot more strength. So I, I suspect we will see more of that happening but having said that, and having grown up in India, I feel that um, we have done some of that. We have, we have, we haven't done it very well. Um, and you know, yes, there have been lots of holes in it. But in terms of universal job guarantees and job creation—sorry, uh, not creation, but job guarantees and income guarantees—a lot of countries in the global south have experimented with this, and once again, quite successfully. So, despite not having the right infrastructure. And despite the fact that we had so many holes that often uh, you know, the benefits did not flow to, our, all of the benefits did not flow to all of the people who needed it. But at the same time, that idea is quite enshrined in our, in our political culture. So that kind of opposition, we don't even have that kind of opposition that you see in places like uh, US and Canada. So uh, we definitely have room to do more of that. And I believe that can be done both in the global north and global south.
0: That's so good. So thank you, uh, Professor. Um, uh, one of my question, uh, okay, before that, I'll take the uh, final question from the audience. Uh, this is by Razia Khan. How has the Trump presidency in the US, Bolsonaro in Brazil, uh, Modi in India, Erdogan in Turkey, etc., and the rise of China, battered the concept of liberal
2: internationalism? (laughs) That's a good question. Um, It's more of a comment, I would say, because yes, it has, (laughs) that would be my answer that definitely it has. Um, But at the same time, you know, they're also really great friends, right? I mean, on, on some level, from their perspective, this is the success of the liberal international order that all these countries that um, you know, ha- have a common thread and have, uh, you know, con- and and have managed to successfully leverage the international order uh, to their advantage. But I agree with the spirit of your question. I think that is definitely a, a, uh, an, a kind of a symptom of the failure of the liberal international order. How can we continue to call it the liberal international order unless we completely redefine what is liberal? So I absolutely agree with you that uh, the international order uh, or global order is not likely to be sustainable if we have, if this trend continues. Uh, But once again, there is reason for hope uh, because Trump was defeated and uh, inshallah other things will happen. (laughs) So, um, you know, uh, I would say that unless we start to work on it as a collective, unless we start to work on uh, these issues from the point of view of of justice and sustainability and inclusiveness, uh, we are likely to continue to repeat those patterns. Unfortunately, we don't have the room or the time to keep repeating those patterns, given what we are faced with in terms of climate change, in terms of, uh, and this isn't going to be the last pandemic this warning has been there for for a long time, that climate change is likely to increase the frequency and intensity of pandemics. So this isn't going to be the end of it. So we have to address this, but the only way we can address it uh, is is not through uh, doing the same things we've been doing uh, for the last 70 odd years. We have to do something differently. And what that would look like, I'm not sure, but my, my hope lies with the people, not with nations.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Meenal. So, I'd like to give you a bit of rest and I would like to ask my question to, uh, Professor, a- Ash- uh, to Professor Ashok Acharya. Sorry, I got muted. Um, Professor, uh, you know, uh, very recently, G. John Eikenberry has written this book, A World Safe for Democracy, Liberal Internationalism, and the Crisis of Global Order. Uh, he has almost appealed. Uh, for the need to make the world safe for democracy uh, but the neoconservative agenda of uh, aggressive promotion of democracy amid the prevailing uh, phenomenon of authoritarianism which professor meenal has brought out so well um, and the efforts to interfere in the sovereignty of other countries makes the world very very ripe for anarchy uh, in the international relations so does this mean that the liberal international order is well into the unmaking or unpacking uh, into something which could ultimately unveil the alternative future, which uh, is the topic for the day? So, would you like to comment on it?
4: Sure. Thanks. Um, thanks, uh, uh, Simi. Uh, that's a that's a wonderful question. You know, uh, just a. Uh, a couple of months ago you know you had this uh, um, uh, we had a global organization uh, whose name i just you know off the cuff and i just can't recall it but anyway so they they came out with a uh, 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 with some kind of an assessment of what is the state of the health of democracy in the world and uh, somewhere uh, uh, did point out that uh, 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 and this was during you know uh, uh, you know a little around Trump's time and coincided you know the results came out after Trump left office uh, but then the uh, uh, you know the overall uh, message from this organization this is a Swedish organization and the overall message was that you know we are, uh, uh, you know um, democracies are on the decline that some of the more established liberal democracies, are now barely electoral democracies and uh, that the you know some of the basic institutions you know some of the strong institutions in some of these uh, countries have been eroded and the pointed fingers at many many countries you know including our own and uh, I, I i thought that it was a uh, that it was a, um, uh, a a good warning to many of us but it it is also some sort of a um, uh, you know uh uh it, it takes us back to a deeper analysis of what the liberal international order actually means and uh, do we see this trend uh as a crisis of the liberal international order or would you call it a fundamental contradiction of the liberal international order because you know uh, uh because even while uh, 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 uh you know some of these uh, uh, countries uh, and especially the united states was uh, you know, um, and it would depend on what kind of a regime would come to power in the United States. You know, so, uh, so some of them would um, speak for promoting democracies elsewhere, but they wouldn't go about it in a nice way. They would you know, uh, so the promotion of democracy and human rights, you know, that was objectionable to some extent because uh, of the non-correspondence between what their ideas of democracy and human rights were vis-a-vis other peoples. And on the other hand, there were other regimes that were not so keen about, you know, uh, exporting or promoting democracies elsewhere. And. I think so, uh, but even if we call this largely the liberal international order, it was basically a, you know, a, a sort of a neoliberal international order where some of the liberal values were compromised with right from the start. And, 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 and uh, uh, you know, uh, they only added, a uh, you know, they lent a purpose only during the Cold War period, but after the Cold War period, some of those liberal values also vanished And many countries also felt that they can, that what they should be trying to do is marry some kind of an economic liberalism with, uh, 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 you know, uh, marry some sort of an economic liberalism with certain forms of stability in place. And that is how you know, is certain forms of authoritarian populisms came to power in 21st century, but this was also again a different, uh, so it's a very complex story, you have to see it uh, against the backdrop of the war on terror that took place and some of the ways in which the United States uh, you know, uh, 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 went back. Uh, on its commitment to the rest of the world, reaching its, uh, uh, you know, its pinnacle during Trump's time, who said that, you know, America first, and we don't have to deal with the rest of the world at all. And that is when, you know, some of these uh, authoritarian populisms were almost on the rise, and were encouraged and inspired by some of the leaders who hardly, you know, uh, epitomized the values of liberalism, in some ways. So I think it's a it's a huge contradiction of the liberal international order. As liberal international order became new liberal during the last part of the 20th century and most much of the 21st century, you know, uh, uh, liberal values were largely derailed, and the and the order had moved elsewhere. And so these contradictions were bound to come, and uh, and we haven't seen the last of it, because. What is, what is happening now is that not only these authoritarian populisms are coming into power, but many of them now are flexing their muscles, speaking only for themselves, and have abdicated the moral responsibility to speak for the rest of the global south. And that is worrying for me, because many of these countries are actually may belong to the global south, or at least do not belong to the west or the north, so to say but now they have abdicated all kinds of moral responsibility and they're in a muscle flexing mode, you know, of trying to say that, you know, we also can build power, we have such nuclear weapons and uh, you know, we must have a, say, a prominent seat in the table of negotiations. And so it is in, in many ways it is, the, it is the end of the liberal international order in some ways.
0: Thank you, thank you, Professor, for your response. Very helpful. Um, I would like to ask a very brief question to uh, Dr. Priya, if you would allow. Mm-hmm. You you spoke about hegemony, and you know, as the as the American power recedes or it it actually declines, uh, it its interests and in, from the interests uh, in the world, a counterfactual could be the emergence of a post hegemonic uh, consortium of like minded um, states where the illiberal where an illiberal pathway to modernity and industrial society and hence consequently prosperity that is offered by china could occupy the the place so what is your take on this
3: um well, that's um uh, that's a very complex question i'm going to struggle and uh, Um, do my best to answer that question. Uh, I think the decline of America is something which has been spoken about hopefully for the last uh, decade at least, but uh, I don't see it happening immediately. And much has been made about America's withdrawal from Afghanistan as an indicator as it being uh, reluctant to play that role of global uh, leadership. But uh, the economic underpinnings and the economic infrastructure of this neoliberal order suggests that uh, the USA is going to continue playing a dominant role, uh, not in a way which is antagonistic to China, but very much in in alliance with it. But again, I'm not, uh, quite frankly, I haven't uh, studied IR very deeply for the last couple of years, so I don't think I'm very uh, competent right now to answer that question. But I guess um, probably prefer, uh, Professor Shivasa would be much better, much more competent to answer that question.
0: Sure. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Priya, for, for that. And uh, yes, I would now go to Professor Meenal for uh, her response, if you would like to uh, respond to this. And also, the uh, you know, coming towards the end of the program, are we also moving towards um, a socially liberal world order, which uh, uh, FDR had actually spoken about long back, uh, given the push for the sustainable development goals. The last goal is the push for partnerships. So So should we rather uh, start using the term an SDG world order or SDG international order? Is it actually, isn't it a manifestation of Vasudev Kutumbakam that you, um, or the cosmopolitanism that
2: you were uh, actually alluding to? Uh, So uh, um, over to you, Professor. Thank you. Uh, Thank you, I think Priya answered that question perfectly. Uh, I I do agree with Priya that uh, we're not likely to see uh, a huge change in the current composition of who's at the table uh, internationally. Um, Yes, China will play a bigger role, uh, but China will be an ally of the existing hegemons. That's how I I understand it as well. Um, But once again, you know yes that's that's an important dimension of the international or global order but at the same time i will go back to the issue of uh, that shouldn't be the only focus the focus has to be on uh, global problems that are confronted that we are confronted with as people and that is where once again we have to start thinking more deeply in terms of um, subnational um and other kinds of ways of uh, political organization that already exist, like cities were brought up that's that's another interesting dimension. Uh, in Europe, uh, there's actually a they have created platforms where cities across Europe can uh, work together on issues that uh, concern them um, and they have managed to actually uh, you know, strategize against financialization of real estate, for instance. There's an amazing documentary out there. It's called Push. I encourage you to find that on, I think it's on YouTube as well. Um, and that talks about how the real estate market has been financialized around the world. It's not just happening in one part of the world. Uh, and what that financialization is doing in terms of not just gentrification of, of uh, residential areas, uh, but really dire outcome for people living in those cities, and the pushback for that is coming from cities. And for that, uh, you know, it, it talks about these consortiums that are fa- formed um, across Europe um, and potentially around the world uh, of cities uh, trying to to kind of join forces in doing some of these, uh, you know, important changes. So essentially bringing back to that issue of a lot of our problems are global, but their solutions are not necessarily in the current setup. A lot of those problems uh, are very locally manifested. And that is where uh, a lot of the work is already being done. So it is for us to connect to that work and to connect it to our larger analysis and not just look at uh, you know, the, the the dominant power structure, but also looking at how that dominant fa- what's happening underneath that dominant power structure. And there's a lot that's happening. So we do have to turn our attention as international relations practitioners and students to to those structures as well. Um, so that uh, I'm not sure. I'm sorry, Simi, would you repeat the question for me? I kind of got uh, carried away with what priya was <laughs> saying yeah yeah so so basically
0: uh, if we are imagining an alternative future and based yeah. on the cosmopolitanism and vasudev kutumbakam are we you know, should we not uh, or should we start using the term sdg world order uh, as okay. as was mentioned by fdr in the social liberal order that he was talking about OK,
2: thank you. Thank you for repeating that. Sorry, I, I forgot. <laughs> uh, and I would, my answer to that would be we don't have to have one label. We don't have to have any label for that matter. But there are many local examples of, of these worldviews, of these strategies, uh, and and these efforts. So I sus- I, my suggestion would be instead of looking for any one universal label, we actually make it uh, you know, a, a, a kind of a gathering of labels, gathering of, of, of strategies and approaches. Um, so yes, I, I'm not one for labeling, but at the same time, I see the point of why we, we need some sort of, uh, you know, kind of anchoring uh, terms and concepts. So but use it just for that, it doesn't have to be defined in, in only one certain way. And of course, sustainable development has a lot of political problems, but that's a whole different presentation which I won't get into right now. Uh, How it's practiced, how it's defined, how it's implemented, all of those are, are again, very problematic. So I would not uh, hinge my hopes on any one label. I would suggest that we have a lot of different um, historical examples and contemporary examples that we can learn from, but we do have to widen our viewfinder. We have to widen our lens and also sometimes turn it back to ourselves, our own histories. Um, So yeah, I hope that answers your question.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. I just wanted to know your take on it. So thank you so much. Uh, So I would quickly move, we are uh, running out of time. I would like to quickly move towards the end of the uh, program where I'd request uh, you to really focus on the next steps or the way forward or your concluding remarks if you have any on um, on the liberal international order and the disorders. So I would like to start with Dr. Priya. Uh,
1: Priya, over to you. Um, oh,
3: so we get slipped into this relaxed zone mode, Zen mode. could you repeat the question?
0: <laughs> uh, so, so your concluding thoughts or uh, you know the way forward in the whole liberal international order discourse.
3: Um, so uh, just to uh, appreciate uh, Professor Srivastava, she started out by uh, with this heightened awareness of her location. And I think to me, that is the starting point of when we uh, want to redesign this world or think of an alternative future of looking at our own histories of uh, oppression and also as oppressors and um, introspecting, interrogating our own lives uh, to me, I think is the the only building block of building, of creating an alternative future. So uh, she mentioned caste, uh, caste, gender, and of course race, uh, unraveling these uh, interlinked uh, power hierarchies is perhaps the nearest, most intimate, and ironically the hardest way to, um, I think, uh, channelize our energies towards a future. Yes, so thank you for that. Thank you for the question.
0: Thank
4: you, Dr. Priya. Uh, Professor Ashokacharya, over to you. Yeah, well, um, I, I thoroughly enjoyed, and uh, you know, presentations by both Meenal and uh, Priya. Uh, uh, the only thing I, I, I think I missed out on pointing was uh, how crucial, you know, given our uh, you know co- collective agreement on some of these issues of addressing you know, let us say socioeconomic inequalities, besides other forms of, uh, uh, you know, uh, inequalities, is, uh, 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 you know, w- w- what sort of a cosmopolitan vision that uh, should now uh, m- m- bring to the center stage is certain kind of a uh, accessibility to the whole realm of socioeconomic rights. That is something, you know, when, when we are talking about human rights, you know, well, there are, you know, all kinds of views about there. But when we are talking about, let us say, universal basic income and all these things, you know, so what sort of what that what is that core set of socioeconomic rights that should now uh, through which we need to envision a cosmopolitan future is what interests me at this point of time. Something that the pandemic brought to full glare. And brought us within uh, very, uh, you know, made us think about some of these issues, you know, with regard to the cities, with regard to people staying elsewhere, with regard to all those, uh, you know, uh, the fractures and the cleavages that uh, that showed up their ugly faces in the world uh, around us, uh, by virtue of which, you know, many of us thought beyond national boundaries and could connect with people and their sufferings elsewhere. And uh, by, by virtue of which we became a little more cosmopolitan uh, than uh, we have been so far. And so I still think that the, our uh, cosmopolitan visions uh, uh, need to take into account how uh, universal socioeconomic rights need to be at the center stage, even while we try to think about better solutions elsewhere and of trying to imagine. A better utopian visions or institutions or norms for ourselves. So I'll, I'll just stop here. But it was fantastic listening to others. thank you.
0: Thank you professor yeah. And the floor is yours Professor Meenal, your concluding thoughts.
2: Um, I, I don't uh, think I have anything to add um, you know without getting into a long lecture mode again so I will spare everyone that. But I would like to thank you for organizing this, Simi, uh, and and to IMPRI. This was really fantastic. What a wonderful opportunity. Um, And I'm really grateful for Priya and Ashok for their remarks and the audience for their questions and their remarks as well. So thank you, everyone. And uh, if you need to connect with me and discuss these things or want uh, the reference list or Uh, or or any of these uh, specific, uh, you know, conversations, I'd be very happy to connect. And um, my email is in the public domain. So feel free to drop me a line and, uh, and good luck to everyone. Please stay safe, stay vaccinated and and safe. (laughs)
0: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Meenal. It was uh, equally very, very uh, fascinating, fascinating presentation and fascinating discussion. um, Indeed, so, uh, so many concepts and narratives uh, that needs to be unraveled, you know, when uh, and this itself is mind boggling when we posit, posit people at the center stage of all prosperity and happiness uh, in the in the international world order so so thankful to you for your presentation uh, i would like to propose the formal vote of thanks on behalf of the impre center for international relations and strategic studies to our speaker professor meenal shivastava and to our discussants professor ashokacharya and dr priya mirza for your uh, for your esteemed presence and for your participation Uh, we really loved your um, intervention and we hope that we continue to learn from all of you and a special mention of thanks to professor santosh kumar singh who would who actually uh, made this Um, discussion possible through his efforts to connect us with Professor Shivasta. So thank you so much. Thank you to all our audience uh, here on Zoom and those who are watching us live on Facebook and to all those who would be watching us later on our YouTube channel and listening to us on our podcasts. So thank you so much and I wish you all a very good Evening, good night in India, and have a good day, Professor Meenal Shivastan. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure.
3: It was a real pleasure being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you you so much. Take care.
2: Bye. Bye. Bye.